I'm Travis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. This is an easy question, Miles. So Chaka made this song famous, but you know who song it is, right? The purple one. There you go, the purple one. Prince, exactly. Just just checking Miles' music now. He's pretty good at these things. Today is Chaka Khan's 70th birthday. If you're listening, Chaka, we love you. Uh, I do love Chaka. Uh, I've known her for years and um, hung out and traveled together around the world and done some things together. Uh, so today is Shaka's 70th birthday. Yesterday, uh, we celebrated the birthday of uh, Stephanie Mills. So two amazing artists. Uh, who knew? Birthdays back to back. Yesterday, we played the music of Stephanie Mills through our three-hour program. And for the rest of the way, we'll play some music from Chaka Khan, who celebrates today her 70th natal day. I should also mention, today is also the birthday, I believe, of Vanessa Bell Calloway, the actress. Uh, Vanessa is a dear friend of ours, supporter of this station. Happy birthday, Vanessa Bell Calloway. And who else? Deborah Shaw Cole, our, our, our CFO, the CFO of this company, Deborah Shaw Cole, celebrating her birthday today. I know she's only 28. So anyway, <laughs> happy birthday, Deborah Shaw, if you are listening. Uh, so a lot of birthdays of people that we know, love and respect and appreciate their work and witness. So uh, uh, once again, happy 70th birthday to Chaka Khan. And we'll play some more of her stuff as we move through uh, the second two hours of our three hour program today in this hour. Why does race seem to color almost every feature of our moral and political universe? Why does a perpetual cycle of slavery in all its political, intellectual, and cultural forms continue to define the black experience? Why are we defined in that way? And why is anti-black violence such a predominant feature not only in this country, but indeed around the world? And finally, what if the problem of racism has no solution? You've heard me say many times around here that I regard racism as perhaps the most intractable issue in the nation. But what if the issue, the problem of racism, has no solution? In this hour, the argument of Afro-pessimism with Dr. Frank B. Wilderson III, who I'm delighted to have on this program for the hour. Dr. Wilderson, how are you, sir? I'm doing just great, Travis. Glad to be here. I've always watched you when you were a television show. And I'm um, happy to be on your radio show. You're kind to say that. I appreciate it. I'm honored to uh, have you on. I followed your work as well. So it's a, one big mutual admiration society, I suspect. Uh, we'll set that aside for the hour, though, and interrogate these issues. Uh, and I'm delighted uh, delighted to have you on. Um, let me just start with this. We'll, we'll get into the particulars, obviously, as we move through the hour. But just on the broad, um, uh, in the broad scheme of things, uh, what about that what-if question? What about that what-if question? What if... The problem of racism has no solution. Can you just kind of just uh, 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 indulge me on the notion of the question to begin with, and then we'll work our way into the answers? How do you mean, what what if it doesn't have a solution? Maybe I should ask you that. Yeah. Um, Racism, as I said a moment ago, to my mind, is the most intractable issue in in the country. Uh, And we'll pivot our way into this notion of Afro-pessimism, as you call it, and get you to define that. Um, But what if we're living in a country? What if we're living in a world where this issue that so constricts us in so many ways, Johnny Cochran once said that racism is a part of everything in America. What if there really is no solution to that problem? How how do I process that for for the rest of my life and my children and my grandchildren, my great grandchildren, um, that there just isn't a solution to this conundrum? That's a hard question to answer. Um, But let me, let me not answer it, but address it in this way. What we're, what we're saying, the people who theorize through Afro-pessimism, 
is that, number one, anti-blackness and white supremacy are two distinct modes of, of subjugation. And anti-blackness is a kind of necessary bomb, B-A-L-M, sure. for all, all non-black people to co- find coherence in their own existence. So, in other words, anti-blackness is necessary, and the violence of anti-blackness is a ritualistic form of therapy for the rest of the world, which is very different than the the the, the violence against immigration or non-black women or the non-black working class. And so, on the one hand, we would say that it is intractable and there's, there's no solution, but specifically, there's no solution that can be thought through in this current episteme, meaning the, the dome of all that can be thought or done. Mm-hmm. Now, episteme, epistemes can, can be uh, destroyed. As we know, the episteme of, of feudalism was destroyed, and we've got the new episteme of capitalism. But, you can, but when you're in an episteme, and we're now globally, I mean, and I would say we've been globally in the episteme, which is founded on, or anti-blackness is foundational to this episteme, of what can be thought and what can be imagined and what can be done. We've, we've been in that at least since 625 A.D. And so it's not that we cannot... There cannot be a world without anti-blackness, because at one point there was a world without anti-blackness before blackness existed as a, as a paradigm, as a paradigmatic position. But what we mean is that when you try to actually write a sentence about what that world would look like or how to solve the problem of anti-blackness, which is very different than writing a sentence about how to solve the problem of white supremacy, which is what non-black people of color experience. When you try to write that sentence, what happens is that you end up not taking on the full extent, the full comprehension of what anti-blackness means, and you end up addressing specific things that happen to black people, which also happen to other people. So the end of of an anti-black world can occur because it wasn't always here, but it's not like you can actually think that through in this moment. Um, struggle will, will help, but we have to understand what anti-blackness means. It means that it's a set of an ensemble of violent rituals and a psychic dynamic, as Frantz Fanon would put it, in which blackness or the imago, the image of the black, becomes available for everybody's psyche to solve whatever problems they have, to to be a foil against which they can know themselves to be alive. What that means is that blackness gives life to the rest of the world in the way that death as a meaning gives a meaning to life, or cat gives a meaning to dog. Blackness is the opposite of what it means to exist as a relational Mm. being. And we get kept there through forms of violence which come to us without contingency, I mean, without us to have transgressed. We are transgressive in our body. And that's why we we, we can struggle through it, but we cannot think of what that means on the other side. Mm. It is is the life breath of everyone else. Mm. 
All right, it's going to be a rich hour. I can see already. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in this hour. Um, for all that he said um, in answer to that one question, which gives us a lot to build on and to work with and to and to interrogate, obviously. Uh, I am stuck on this. I am stuck on this one phrase, which we're going to come to in just a moment when we come forward. He defines anti-blackness, as you heard, as a ritualistic form of therapy for the world. That that hit me. That anti-blackness, as uh, Dr. Wilderson puts it, is a ritualistic form of therapy for the world. Yeah, we gonna unpack that when we come forward. You're listening to KBLA Talk. I'm Tabby Smiley. You're tuned into KBLA Talk 1580, and we're glad about it. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580, and because we're so gifted and talented, we can do two things at once around here. We can celebrate the 70th Natal Day of Chaka Khan uh, and have a conversation about Afro-pessimism all at the same time. Uh, so we're playing uh, throughout today's program some of the music of Chaka Khan as she celebrates again her 70th birthday. Happy birthday, Chaka Khan. Our guest in this hour, though, is Dr. Frank B. Wooderson III. Uh, and uh, we're talking about this term, this notion, as he has coined it, Afro-pessimism. Afro-pessimism. And he has already got uh, our brains turning uh, with a number of things he said, which I want to interrogate here as we move forward. But I want to start with this. He, he, he was talking a moment ago, as you heard, about anti-blackness and suggested, not suggested, said, in fact, uh, boldly and directly, that anti-blackness is a ritualistic form of therapy for many around the globe, a ritualistic form of therapy. Uh, I'm trying to wrap my brain around that, and I want you uh, to uh, spend some time, Dr. Wooderson, unpacking that formulation for me, sir. Take it away. Okay. First thing I want to say is uh, also I share your birthday celebration of Shaka Khan. I was, uh, my dad was on sabbatical in Chicago back in 1969 Ooh. and when I was in high, high school, and my mother was doing her research for a PhD, and I so wanted to go to Kenwood School where Shaka Khan was. That's a great story. Even even scholars, even scholars love Shaka Khan. I love it, man. She's a uh, oh yeah, yeah. She, oh, yeah. She, I, came up, yeah oh, sorry, I came up with Shaka Khan. I came up with Shaka Khan. Yeah, I, I was. I was. Let me let me just, let me just let me just pause for a second. We'll come back to anti blackness in a second. Let's talk about Shaka Khan for a second. Uh, I, I've said many times. As a matter of fact, I was in, I was at dinner the other night with some friends and we were talking about this and there were a number of us people were in town there was a big event happening in LA a number of folk were in town friends of mine from different places so we all got together for dinner one night so at the table you got LA you got New York you got Chicago a few other places represented at the dinner table and we got into a conversation about music as we tend to do and we just started you know bragging about our various cities and who hails from our city and Chicago just ran away with it. I mean, when you start thinking of, <laughs> you start thinking of all the great artists who hail yeah. from the city of Chicago, uh, yeah, one of my favorite did. American cities. I mean, Chalk is just one on the list. So I I I I, I revel in your story about being in Chicago when Chaka was on her way up, and uh, she's just she's just all that and then some. Anyway, uh, Miles. As a matter of fact, while, while we're at it, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna put a request in. I, I I rarely do this. I'm gonna put a request in. Uh, we can get to it uh, after news, traffic, and sports. Chaka's cover of Gotta Be There by the Jackson Five. Oh. Oh, if, you, yeah. if you've never heard Chaka's cover of Gotta Be There, uh, and uh, push me into it just a little bit, Miles. Push me into it just a little bit. Uh, but when we uh, come forward in this hour, if you've never heard her cover 
of God to be there. Oh, Lord Jesus. I, I, you're going to hear it today. Anyway, uh, we'll play chocolate <laughs> for the next couple of hours. Uh, right now, I want to get back to Dr. Wilderson and this notion of anti-blackness as a ritualistic form of therapy. Dr. Wilderson, take it away, sir. Okay. And the one thing I want to say is that um, a lot of this for the lay public is um, comes out in my book, Afro-Pessimism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm doing my own work, but there's also the work of many, many scholars who are involved in this. And, and um, at the back of the book, there's uh, a notes on the people I quote. And mm-hmm. so, you know, people should re- realize that. But the second thing is Afro-pessimism is not an emotional disposition. It doesn't mean sadness. What Afro-pessimism means, for those of us who began to, to theorize this and came up with the term, was actually given to us by Sadia Hartman, who was my advisor on my dissertation, is that we're pessimistic about theories of economic deprivation or theories that come out of, of feminism to adequately explain black suffering. So we've written a whole lot of uh, very highly abstract critical theory texts which critique the notion that black people suffer through being poor, essentially, because we do. Mm-hmm. But there's a way in which a man, a black man driving a Bentley or a black woman who's a billionaire suffers in the same way as a black sharecropper. And that's precisely what our work has tried to pinpoint. And it comes full circle to your question. What we're trying to say is that blackness exists in the collective unconscious as a foil against which anyone, no matter how oppressed they are, can know themselves to be at least human. I could be a Native American, a form of degraded humanity, or a Latinx person trying to get across Trump's wall, a form of degraded humanity, but I'm still a member of humanity because humanity is defined in contradistinction to slaveness, to the, to the black. And this is, this is a highly um, sophisticated and very complicated ways in which we work this through uh, psychoanalysis, but I won't get into all that here. The point being is that in order for that dichotomy to be maintained, and this, and this, this dichotomy is maintained everywhere in the world that I have been. I've been most places in the world except for Asia, mm-hmm. uh, but but I in my research and with graduate students, uh, on, I know it's in Asia also. That to be to to, to know oneself unconsciously, semi-consciously, and consciously as a relational being, to know that I am a member of a community. If if all the things that make that possible are destroyed through, say, colonialism or occupation. I still have this kernel of knowledge that I exist as a human and as a relational being because I exist as a non-black. Mm. In order for that dichotomy to be maintained, blackness must experience forms of, of accumulation and, and egregious violence that also come to other people. But blackness must experience this in a way that we theorize it's without contingency. In other words, black people must be available for police shootings, for lynching, for all sorts of, of minor uh, microaggressions and macroaggressions based upon our, what Fanon calls the epidermal schema, our skin. 
not based upon what we do. We are the one group of sentient beings in the world who are transgressive in our bodies, not transgressive in our actions. Mm. And that, that dichotomy has to be maintained through ritualistic violence that then acts as a solvent, a bomb for everyone else to know, okay, that could happen to me, yeah. but I would have to transgress. Yeah. No, this is this is getting rich as I promised it would. Um, so let me let me just a quick follow up on that. And then and we're going we're to move. Um, you, you keep every time you say something, my mind is just I'm, I'm racing trying to keep up with you. So in, in, in what ways, then, is anti-blackness a therapy? I want to hone in just on that word. We called it you called it a ritualistic form of therapy. In what ways mm-hmm. is for some people anti-blackness a therapy? Why that word? Yes, uh, because one understands one who is not black understands that when they see something like George Floyd or, or Sandra Bland, that um, the, the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Sandra Bland, mm-hmm. um, they could then understand at some level uh, for a Southern white segregationist, you know, who's very honest about his, her, their feelings, it would be at a very conscious level for a Northern liberal, it would be at a very unconscious and embarrassing level. They understand that, um, I am safe. I can be injured because the black cannot be injured. That happened to someone, but no injury happened. And this is this goes back. Um, this is the nature of what it means to be a slave, as Sadia Hartman has pointed out in in her work on on, on black women and, and rape. When black women during the um, slavery went to have rape adjudicated, the judge would say, "Look, I understand." that you were sexually violated. However, you do not exist as a being who embodies consent. Therefore, there was no injury. What are you? You are an extension of the master's prerogative. You are like a tool or a horse. So if if you could be injured, then you would be a subject uh, worthy of, of litigation. And I think that what we're trying to say is that that dichotomy between those people who can be injured have have their consent violated and black people who can experience violence but no injury occurs, that is the bomb. That is the psychic ritual that happens and must continuously happen or else we'd have a crisis in the way the order of the world exists today. I'm going to be be stuck on that point the rest of the day that just being reminded, <clears throat> as Professor uh, Dr. Wooderson does in this moment, reminding us that there was a point in time in this country where there were jurists who literally advanced the argument <clears throat> in courtrooms that he just laid out. That you, you, you can't be injured because you don't embody the, the humanness. Um, to, your, to his point, you're like a, you're like a horse or some kind of or. or or a tool to be used out in the fields. Uh, you cannot be injured because you do not embody the humanness uh, to be injured uh, because you are uh, an extension of the property of, uh, of the master. That argument was literally advanced uh, as uh, underpinning decisions made in courts all across this country when black women went into courtrooms uh, to try to get uh, some modicum of justice 
for being raped. That was the argument that was advanced. And I, I'm just pausing there for a second because that's just something to think about, that that's the argument that jurors, that judges actually advanced <clears throat> in not dealing with and, the rape of black women. I'm sorry, go ahead. You want to say something? And, and, yes, you know, it, it, the, the, I, would, I tell my students all the time, if we lived in the 19th century, I would be out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So would I. That makes, that makes two of us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, people said what they thought. And, you know, Justice Taney and the Dred Scott decision, sure. the 250-page decision, in the middle of it, he goes like this. I'll try to be very brief. He says, look, I'm returning Dred Scott to slavery, not because I'm siding with the lower court that said the master did not manumit, give him freedom. And I'm certainly not siding with one of the other lower courts who said he made it to Minnesota and therefore he's free. What I'm trying to tell you people is this is what's in jurisprudential uh, law. It's called a Herculean um, opinion. He said, I am trying to explain to you that Dred Scott should never have been heard because he is a sentient being that comes from a place where there is no community called Africa. There's a very big difference, he writes, between Dred Scott and a Native American. A Native American is a form of degraded humanity who we occupy and subjugate, but we are trying to change and, and, and I'm, I'm bastardizing his words, but, but, but whiten to the point where they can become full citizens. Scott is the anti-citizen. He is the non-being. Mm. Where I'm, I'm not siding with the lower courts who sent him back to slavery because the master didn't set him free. In fact, I'm chastising the lower courts for hearing him in court at all. He is, mm. he is not a subject of political community like the Native Americans. He is our thing. Mm. He is our thing. And this is, yeah. what we're trying to say is that this this very straightforward, what in psychoanalysis is called pre-conscious articulation of speech, is the foundation of the, of the unconscious world of, of thought in the 21st century. It's just that so many people are embarrassed to articulate it, yeah. but it operates nonetheless. So I'm looking at my clock here. I've got news, traffic, and sports in 60 seconds. Let me tell you where I want to go when we uh, come forward. Um, since we're talking about uh, black suffering writ large, um, uh, I believe that it is the telling of truth that allows the suffering to speak. When we when we tell the truth, uh, then the suffering can be heard. And when we don't tell the truth, then the suffering gets rendered invisible. Right. So I want to talk about uh, about black suffering when we come forward. And particularly this point you made a moment ago that we are transgressive, not because of our actions, but because of these bodies that we inhabit that have melanin in our skin. Um, what am I to do with that? And I, again, I'm not naive in raising this, but I want to follow you on it. What am I to do with the fact that my very presence, my very being is in and of itself transgressive just because the way I show up in the world physically, um, given this melanin that is in my pigmentation, just my being, my looking that way on the surface makes me transgressive. That's a lot to process. When we come forward, we'll do that, uh, process that, and a great deal more to get to in this hour as we talk about Afro-pessimism with our guest, our esteemed guest, Dr. Frank B. Wilderson III, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Chicago's own Shaka Khan celebrating today her 70th birthday. Our guest in this hour, Dr. Frank B. Wilderson III, was joking earlier. Well, he wasn't joking. He was serious. Uh, he was growing up in Chicago uh, with Shaka Khan. Uh, at the time, she was not Shaka Khan at that time. 
Uh, she, no, was, she was Yvette what, back then. Yeah, she was Yvette. Yvette. But what people don't know, what, I mean, you know, but a lot of people don't know is that um, the time, she's three years older than me, and she was part of a political milieu. Yes. Um, I was only in Chicago for about four months. Uh, but the, the milieu was that she was part of the Panthers at one time. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think her un, that, that uncompromising force that you feel coming through that her music really goes back in part to her activism and and the way she struggled. No, that's a powerful, powerful point. Uh, I love what I have guests who he's a scholar, so he knows a little bit of everything. But I love how he's just waxing poetic about the backstory of Chaka Khan, which is just an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing uh, to be in dialogue with somebody who loves music the way I do and, and respects uh, Chaka's gift. So happy birthday, Chaka Khan. Uh, so uh, Chaka Khan, as brilliant and as gifted as she is, is no different than Dr. Frank B. Wilson III, as we're talking about his book and his work around Afro-pessimism. She's no different than uh, Dr. Wilson or yours truly in that when she shows up, when she occupies space, wherever that might be, on a stage or any place else, her very presence is transgressive. The presence of her body in that space is transgressive, uh, not because of her actions, but simply because of the way she shows up, the melanin in her skin. And that's a lot to navigate. And I think our white brothers and sisters don't often get that, Dr. Wilson, that we are transgressive again, as you put it, not because of our actions, but because of our very presence our very existence but that's a lot to deal with it is even for me or especially for me mm. I, don't know. I mean i i you know but i i think that when i got out of college i was a, a stockbroker for eight years and i figured that if i was still a stockbroker today and not an intellectual i would be making about $350,000 a year, which I don't make anywhere near. Mm-hmm. But I would not have the power of understanding or possess the power to pose the question from a black perspective in these multicultural spaces. And I think that even though um, I like to, I don't, I unconsciously will pump myself up, you know. Uh, as I drive around in my nice car in Orange County, and I know that I'm a chancellor's professor, and there's only 50 out of 3,000 at UC Irvine, mm-hmm. and I have this and that and the other, and then something happens, and I realize, oh, no, that's not who I am, as Fanon has pointed out in Black Skin, White Mass. That is not who I am to the world. To the world, I am a stimulus to anxiety. I am a phobic object. And so, on the one hand, there's two things that can that can happen with that. And one is that you can just kind of sink into despair, um, and uh, sometimes it even brings about suicide. And often enough, uh, because an anti-black unconscious does not just live out there; it lives within us as well. We understand ourselves to be a threat to ourselves. And as I write rather jokingly in my book, Afro-Pessimism, what is the um, cardinal rule of, of Negro diplomacy? It, it is make them feel safe. So the more white collar we become, the more we move through the world trying to enter into a room like, how can I make them feel safe? Oh, yes. But I think, I think what Afro-Pessimism does as a theory and a set of texts is beginning to help people 
em- uh, embrace something that they are a threat to me, damn it. Mm-hmm. I am not going to make them feel safe. Mm-hmm. And that that is that is what I mean by the power to pose the question, because even in radical multiracial spaces. I did a lot of organizing in the Bay Area, and I was the second black person to hold elected office in the African National Congress, which is a multiracial organization under Mandela in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I could see in both spaces that any time um, someone from the townships in South Africa or, or a black person from Bayview Hunters Point in, in the north part of California would bring up something in these spaces that pointed to a form of oppression, a form of violence that they were experiencing, which was not analogous to the way in which brown people were experiencing it, the organization would shut that down and say, you're playing oppression Olympics, or can we find a common ground here? And I think what Afro-pessimism has done, because I've been giving Afro-pessimist workshops to Black Lives Matter organizations and the Movement for Black Lives, in unknown places like uh, unusual places like Vienna and Berlin and London, as well as in the United States, Mm -hmm. black people have begun to begin to understand that the very essence of anti-blackness is different than the very essence of white supremacy. And we demand to be heard as on that subject, if you're truly a comrade of ours. And so it doesn't solve the problem, but it, it, you know, as Fanon writes in Black Skin, White Mask, in his chapter, The Negro and Psychopathology, he says, as a phobic object, I, the Jew, he says, the Jew stimulates anxiety based upon the ideas that the anti-Semitic person thinks the Jew is going to bring into the world and threaten. The I, Fanon, stimulate anxiety by just my, my melanin walking into the room. Mm-hmm. And also, as an image... I can be harnessed and grabbed by any other person to become the destination of their aggression when they are really upset with something in their own world or in their own family. I exist as that object where aggressivity can just go to. This is what I meant by anti-black violence is the psychic bomb that heals everyone else's psyche. And What's, what's, we've known this all along, but I think what Afro-pessimism has done with a series of texts and workshops and is it has allowed people who are activists and people who are not activists to demand that the conversation happen on black suffering terms, oh, yeah. not simply on the terms of other people. No, when we, when we come forward, I want to come to that issue. Um, I said moments ago, uh, minutes ago, that I believe that it's the telling of truth that allows the suffering to speak. And if the suffering... Uh, if there's no truth that's being told, uh, then that suffering gets rendered invisible. And I want to ask Dr. Wooderson whether or not he thinks that in this moment in late modernity that the suffering of black people is, in fact, being rendered invisible. I know you're thinking George Floyd video. I know you're thinking uh, any number of other videos that we've seen. Uh, but even in light of all that, um, those are specific examples, uh, Tyree Nichols, etc. But I wonder writ large whether or not he thinks that the suffering of black people is in fact being rendered invisible. And I'm still noodling his notion of a moment ago shared that you heard and felt as I heard and felt it. And that is this preoccupation, um, this necessity, uh, pick your word that many of us feel and have when we enter spaces with our white brothers and sisters to make them feel safe and comfortable. That's a serious, again, that's a serious 
thing to navigate, always having to be on your best behavior, whatever that means to make them feel safe and comfortable. We'll continue with Dr. Frank B. Woodson III when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to like and follow Tavis Smiley at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues when we come forward. Forward. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where everybody is somebody and nobody is a stranger. You belong here. You do indeed belong here, and I'm glad to have you here uh, in this hour watching our time, which is getting away from me. Uh, let me come to two things right quick. Uh, given the, the time constraints, uh, our guest is Dr. Frank B. Wilson III, talking about his work and his text by the same name, Afro-Pessimism. Uh, I wonder, Dr. Wilson, whether or not you think in this moment— um, writ large, um, the suffering of black people, black suffering, is being rendered invisible. Yes, I think that there are two kinds of things happening simultaneously. Imagine what you're talking about, which is the river uh, above ground. And, you know, what that river is saying to us, the media images and um, Everything that's going on is that, you know, we have arrived, we had a black president, um, you need to stop complaining, um, it's it's really not as bad as you, you think it is. And I, unfortunately, um, but the Democratic Party is playing into that because they're not speaking to us until they need our vote at election time. Other than that, there's other times they're speaking to the Republican Party trying to you know, out patriotism each other or out um, fiscal responsibility each other or out Americanize each other. So that, I think, you know, on the surface, uh, it's rather depressing in the, in, in the way that you're talking about. But there's something that people aren't actually noting or putting their finger on so much, and that is there's an underground river in which um, black people all over the world are coming together to theorize, not just to, to say or articulate our suffering, but to actually theorize what that means and how it is structurally different than the suffering of other oppressed people. And that has spread like wildfire in the past 10 years. And so that's not getting a lot of press, but one of the symptoms of, of that is the ways in which we as Afro-Pessimist scholars have been asked, as I said earlier, to do all of these highly, highly theoretical workshops for black movement organizations. I've been to Cape Town, to Johannesburg, to all these different places by people who are studying our highly dense theoretical texts and asking, how do we understand this? And then taking it upon themselves to figure out, well, what does it mean for our struggle? That's not a media event, but it's it's spraying like wildfire. The other symptom is that when jobs are posted, in the Chronicle of Higher Education for the academic world, more and more what you're seeing is that um, one of the, one of the um, requests is that someone be uh, able to teach Afro-pessimism. That didn't happen 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So this is going to have a major, major effect, uh, and I think a positive one, once it becomes uh, once it becomes something that the mainstream media cannot ignore. Yeah. In our remaining moments with uh, Dr. Frank B. Wilson III, I want to come to this other issue uh, right quick here uh, about this uh, penchant that many of us feel uh, when we are in certain spaces, uh, particularly if we are, <laughs> if we are, uh, how might I put it, if we are, are lured by 
the normative white gaze, this penchant that we feel to make others, to make them feel safe and comfortable. We'll talk about that in a moment with Frank B. Wooderson III on KBLA Talk 1580. Say the quiet part out loud. loud. KBLA Talk 1580. B. Wooderson III of University of Irvine in uh, uh, Southern California in this uh, hour. We're talking, have been talking uh, about Afro-pessimism, his work and his text uh, by the same name. He's the Chancellor's Professor of African-American Studies at UC Irvine. Um, in the three uh, and a half minutes I have left here, uh, Dr. Wooderson, I want to circle back to that notion you raised earlier, talking about Afro-pessimism, of this 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 need, this pension that many of us feel in certain spaces to make them, others, feel safe and comfortable. I want to close with you uh, expressing a bit more on that note. Well, you know, for, uh, in Black Skin, White Mass, Fanon has this interesting phrase. He says, I fear the fear of the world once the world comes to know me. And I think that in some way, whenever we go into a store, whenever we go into a meeting, uh, in some consideration that that is is there in our minds. And, you know, my book is part memoir and part theory. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the memoir part, I talk about, you know, the time in my 20s and 30s when I was uh, a stockbroker, and the thing that I I was developing an ulcer that was going to really eat a hold of my stomach. And what I realized looking back on it now is that every time I had to meet someone, I never wanted to meet white people to have them part with their money in person, which mm-hmm. is a, a necessary thing to do. I always wanted to do it over the telephone and put on my whitest voice to make sure that they didn't know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Because when I met them in person, it was always like, am I going to be too black? Am I going to, are they going to want to invest this $100,000? What's going to happen, you know? And so I think that now, as I have a lot less money, but a greater understanding, it's not that that has left me. It, it means that I know that what occupies my mind is this question, how does it feel, as the boys put it, how does it feel, as we put to the boys, how does it feel to be a problem? And rather than fixing that intuitively for their benefit, I can then ask myself, well, how can I just relax and be me in this moment? Now, not everyone has the luxury of doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, academics have more luxury than financial corporate people. But I think that understanding this can 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 help you. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I, you know, it's not something that's just going to go away. It's the whole dynamic of the world depends upon it. Yeah. Um, here's my exit question with 90 seconds to go. Um, you think it's possible that at some point in the future, way, 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 way out there, that the black experience in America will not be defined through the prism of race, or is that a forever reality? No, because for, I believe it can, it can, that can happen, but I believe if that happens, it will not be America. America is organically anti-black. Mm. Organically anti-black. Yeah. Wow. If we had another hour, we could talk about that. But. Well, we we, we 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 will have another hour. It won't be today. <laughs> it won't be today, but there will be another hour. And when we get to the other hour uh, down the road, speaking of the future, we'll talk about why and the ways in which you think America is organically anti-black. And I also want to hear the story, which, again, you cover in your book. We didn't get to it in this hour, but in our next hour, uh, we'll talk about that journey as a black man from stockbroker to scholar. I am fascinated by that journey from stockbroker to scholar. So, uh, J.D., uh, make sure you got, we get Dr. Wooderson back on in the not-too-distant future to continue this conversation. For now, 
Uh, Frank Wooderson, thank you for your time, sir. We'll do it again, I promise. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. I've always wanted to be talking with you. Well, uh, I am honored to. I finally made that happen for both of us. I thank you, sir. Uh, hour three of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.